Hello everybody, this is Twitchy Max and you're listening to season two of the family-friendly podcast Expired XP. This season we explore the world of gaming through insider interviews, new and retro game specials, and points of view on industry trends. If you like games, this podcast is for you. Today we're talking to Mike Porter, Professor of Video Game Level Design at SMU Guildhall. We're going to talk to Mike about how he got into the games industry, the great games he's worked on, and what makes a good game level. Hello, everyone. Uh, fantastic guest for us here today. We've got Mike Porter. Uh, hello, Mike. Hey, how's it going? We're super excited to have you on today. Uh, as ever, we've got Useless Viking with us, Pete. Hello, everyone. <laughs> yes, I am here. By name and nature, Useless and a Viking. Yes, yeah, very much so. So, yeah, we're... We're super excited to have you here, Mike. As someone who's kind of worked in the industry most of their career or all, all of their career, we're, we're really interested to hear your trajectory and how you got into gaming. But first of all, um, let's hear a bit about yourself. Do you want to introduce what you do for a living and sure, give, sure us a, get out, give our listeners a bit of a background? Yeah, I, I will say this. You've, you've made me sound much younger than I actually am. Most of my career <laughs> was not in game in, in the game okay. industry. Um, I didn't start working in games until I was over 35 years old. Uh, well, so, that gives oh, me wow. hope. That gives me hope, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I'm, 50, I'm 55 right now, so I'm an old dude. Yeah, so my name is Mike Porter. I am a professor of uh, video game level design at it's a Master's of Interactive Technology at SMU Guildhall, which is one of the top-rated schools, uh, universities in the world uh, for video game development. And it's been around, I think, ooh, I want to say 18 years. I, I don't know that that's actually true, but it's it's been around for quite a while. I've only been there for the last three years. And uh, yeah, so for the last 20-some-odd years, I've worked in the video game. Since 1995, I've worked in the video game industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Growing up, I read a lot of books and, you know, like was really into fantasy and sci-fi. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of that on TV other than things like Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, you know, all yeah. that stuff. And I was always drawing, like making up my own fantasy stuff I, from a very early age was drawing and writing my own stories and stuff. And, and one day this friend of mine, uh, he had one of those uh, TRS-80s, the Tandy computers oh, it's, like a hand, it's like a little handheld like a calculator almost really like a uh, so it's a tr we call them the trash 80 and i played a game called starfleet orion in 1979 and i was just like that's it this is what i want to do i want to yeah. make games this is cool you know like i felt like i was part of this world you know and all it was was like ascii characters on the screen it wasn't <laughs> You know, was, it wasn't, like, it, yeah, it wasn't even graphics. It was asking. Yeah. And what yeah. was the mechanic of the game that, that hooked you? Uh, so you were taking control of the entire ship. So you had, and it had like security and uh, engineering and all that stuff. And so you had to constantly switch between tabs to figure out what was going on in the ship. And you would uh, warp into different areas and then would have to immediately figure out where you wanted to place your shields based on enemy enemy wow. placement hmm. and it was just like wow this is so in depth you know for uh, 
for for a video game at that time, you know, like Pong was pretty big then. Pong's pretty simple. Right. It was pretty yeah. simple. And this this was like really deep. You know, it had like multiple tabs, had multiple, you know, elements to it that I, that you had to manage. And I was like, man, this is like as if one person was having to run the entire ship like a captain. It's just really cool. Have so you ever, have you revisited it since? Have you played it? Oh no. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things you go back to replay some of them and they're like, they don't hold up well. I mean, I'm sure the ASCII characters look great still, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's only so much you can do to that, right? But, you know, you see some games now that still do that sort of like deep mechanics. And, you know, obviously now they put like beautiful graphics behind it. But sometimes I just like to delve into like little simple games like that, just to... Hmm you know, jump in and then jump back out and not be invested so heavily because time is pretty precious right now. Yeah, and yeah, I say yeah. that and I'm playing Witcher 3 and I'm like crushing hours into it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. still that's playing. such Witcher a good game 3. though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like your your key first game. Hmm. Um, and that's quite, quite early on in 79. Yeah. Did you, in the 80s and the 90s, was, was, did you just kind of spend lots of time at arcades? Were you a PC gamer? What, what kind of gamer were you? Yeah. So I worked for my dad when I, from the time I was 10 till I was 16, I was constantly, um, if I wasn't at home or going to school, I was working for my daddy at a lawn and tree service. So I really didn't have a whole lot of time to go to arcades. You know, we just, I just didn't. But what, what really was interesting about that is we worked in these really like, like country clubs. We would go mow these, people's lawns and country clubs and this um i remember pulling up to this house and they had thrown out an entire commodore system like the monitor the keyboard you know all of it and i was like wow that you know i I went up and asked them is this broken it's like no we just bought a new computer and i was like oh i said can i take that and they're like sure you know so i i took home this commodore i don't know anything about commodore 64 or Hmm. how they worked or any of that of that stuff. Um, I took it home and tried to set it up and there was no disc drive and I couldn't <laughs> afford it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I got a tape drive. Expensive, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got a tape drive and I remember buying my first game ever and it was forbidden forest and it was on oh, cassette Yeah, and I stuck like it that. in there and it took an hour to load it. <laughs> and I played for 10 minutes and died. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to reload it yeah you have to rewind and load it back up yeah um, i was i was a commodore 64 that was that was one of my first computers so i i know the yeah. feeling of loading tapes yeah yeah same i mean i did get a disk drive after a while Richie always says i was super privileged and yeah. mocks me because at one stage i had two disk drives which <laughs> oh, it was the, the height of, of sophistication in the game but i did start on tape as well and yeah you know but were you excited though like that first game that you played did you continue playing that or did you have a favorite on commodore 64 that you just go this was the best game i ever played uh, man there were so many games and you know like back then Again, I was broken. I found like pirated so much, you know, which is really wrong. Yeah. But I pirated so many games and have friends just giving me games. And I tried, I tried everything. I loved all the like, you know, Predator and oh. I had like the Predator game, the 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 um, platoon. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. so hard. Was so hard. Yeah. Um. The and the little joystick, you know, that, oh, that yeah, the five dollar joysticks that would break. Yeah. Um. And just doing the um, the pull-ups and all that stuff in Platoon. Mm. Or, or no, I'm sorry. That was uh, Airborne Rangers. They had mm. an Airborne Rangers game and you had to use like like um, lot of the Olympic games or the... Summer Olympics and Winter Olympics had yeah. that as well. And you, you had, had to, to like... the joystick back yeah. and forth really quickly. And you knew it was breaking the joystick. <laughs> Every just, time. 
Yeah. It was just, I just wondered, like, are they in the pocket of each other? Like, oh, yeah. if you were a joystick manufacturer, do you make a game that definitely is going to break the joystick so the kids have to go and buy a new one? Yeah. yeah. I loved it, though. I, I love playing that. I love playing all those games, you know. So Impossible Mission, I thought, was really cool and, oh. and clever. And then after a while, you know, like working for my dad, I was actually making really good money. Uh, when I was 16 years old, back in 1984, I was making about six, seven bucks an hour and I was working 12 hour days. So, you know, there was just, uh, and six days a week. So it wasn't like I was doing anything else. And so eventually I bought myself an Amiga. Nice. Yeah. And, um, and then I got like uh, a 3d modeling software. I think it was called Quicksilver. And I played with that for a little while. I was like, Oh man, this is what I want to do on a 3d model. Uh, and I also got like the, um, the painting software, and I can't remember. I think it was D-Paint. There was D-Paint, and there was paint, uh, paint Pro or something as well, but D-Paint, I remember D-Paint. I think it was D-Paint, and yeah. I was just, like, blown away because it was millions of colors, right? So Yeah. And and I was just painting all the time in there with a mouse, which I can't even imagine now. <laughs> but yeah, back then, I, I, and, you know, I, I think I was doing pretty good paintings, you know, with a mouse. I actually had a go at that recently, and it was just like, what, how did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> It was just oh, like some magic that was happening back then. So, did you realize that you were good at it? Did Were you actually good at it? Can you look back at it now and say that you did well considering that you were using a mouse or? Yeah, I think I think I was like, I would have other friends that would tell me like, I've, I've seen, I haven't seen this stuff on video games. This is really good. So that's cool, you know. man. So did you yeah, so Amiga for creating or was it more gaming? So it was more gaming. I didn't say I'm not technical. I'm, I'm not a programmer. And so a lot of, like, I really tried, like I got those programming magazines and I really sat down and tried to figure it out. And I just, my headspace is not there. I'm getting better at it actually. Like, you know, I'm 55 now and I'm still struggling with it, but I'm getting better at it. I'm actually using blueprint and building stuff in blueprint now. So um, I think the visual scripting has actually helped me out quite a bit. I also had like uh, the Nintendo's, you know, I had a super Nintendo and I think my favorite game of all time was the secret of mana on super nintendo oh yeah like in 93 i just it was so good and it had like the first that i know of the first radio menu like for selecting and i just thought that was a super smart innovation Uh, why do you you think that was the best what was was it that really made it stand out to you i I think again at the time i didn't play a lot of jrpgs Mm. you know that was my very first one and i really liked the depth of the story and the camaraderie of the story i felt like that you know, like there was some sense of history for the game and there was a sense of, there was world building mm. at a time where you really didn't get a whole lot of world building, you know, um, like world building for most, you know, like American games is like, there's a demon you have to kill, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or there's, you know, back in, back in that time period. Right. So like doom was pretty prevalent back then. I think it was the same time period. Mm. Um, secret of man was 93 doom was 93. Yeah. So pretty much the same time period. Right. And so, you know, your story in doom was just go kill stuff and get to the next level. And in secret of mana, there was like these relationships that you had to build and you had to decide who was coming with you into these different areas. And you had to figure out your loadout, you know, what were you going to take into that dungeon or that area with you? You, you know so it was it just really it like spoke to the storyteller side of my you know of my personality and what i really liked and so yeah i think that was pretty influential 
for me. Did you ever play any of the game uh, Zelda games on the SNES? Yeah, yeah, I, I did, but I wasn't as intrigued with that as I was with the Secret of Mana. Secret of Mana, yeah, yeah. And I think they just did a remake, and I looked at the I looked at the images, and I'm just like, no, no, don't don't mess with a classic. You know, yeah. I don't want to see it in 3D. I want to see it in 2D. Yeah, you know, remaster it in 2D. Because yeah. I think the charm of that gets lost when you convert it to 3D. And I think that's like a cautionary tale for all <laughs> for all developers. It's like, you know, if you want to, if you take a beloved classic, sometimes it's better to just keep it 2D and then work with innovations within the 2D space, like, you know, like um, post-processing, Bloom and all that other stuff. I've seen some really beautiful games that are 2D using 3D backgrounds but mm-hmm. 2D, still the same orthographic view and using post-processing and, and bloom lighting and, and you know dynamic lighting and stuff like that. And I think that that's where they should like innovate in that space as opposed to trying to, you know, look at the entire world in 3D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there have been a few failures recently, you know, the Grand Theft Auto releases that came out again were apparently absolutely abysmal. Yeah. Uh, and and poorly um, poorly upgraded, uh, I should right. say. And there have been a few like that. But then you have the odd success, like the Mass Effect um, series that came out, uh, mm. the, the uh, upspect version. I actually really enjoyed both yeah. the first and the second one, and, and replayed them and thought they that they'd done the right things. They'd made them right. even more the way they were, like rather than trying to redo them in a different way that didn't make any sense. They kind of just streamlined it a bit, used the same menu system, and right. you know, fixed mistakes like. Right. The, the, the Marco or Miko or whatever it's called, the vehicle from the first game, which was mm. just absolutely horrific to drive. They'd actually settled it and you could drive it and it was right. not like the worst part of the game anymore. Right. Um, but apart from that, it's kind of like there are a lot of games that just don't need it. It's, I feel like there's an obsession to redo things. It's the same yeah. like the movies, right? There's an obsession with this constant redo. Right. Where's the new ideas? You know, and then we're getting, so we are getting new ideas, but it's from like indies, right? You get all these mm. indie developers coming out with a crazy, like Atomic Heart, you know, you get some really interesting ideas coming out. I love playing indie games now just because of that. It's, it's not the same thing over and over again you don't know what so you're how, gonna get so yeah like, that's I just, right i just gotta ask so how did you go from because you said that uh, you know you, uh, you're talking about the gap between like being uh 16 up to 35 and obviously working in something else and then from 35 yeah. onwards you started so how how what what did you do until then and how and how did you switch from whatever that was into the game yeah. development? so um i had a series of menial labor jobs you know, like I would, I went from working for my dad to working at a lumber yard. So I was a yard dog. So I would run through the lumber yard and load up people's trucks and, you know, like lift, you know, lift um, appliances into their trucks and that sort of thing. And then um, I did that for a while and three or four different companies. And then I, I just wanted to do art. And so I found a job working at a sign shop. I would do like some sign painting. I would also, I would also design channel letters, you know, like for neon signs. So I would design the channel letters and then I would draw out the neon sign, the neon itself. I would draw out that pattern for it to be developed, glass blown and, and filled. But the boss, um, one of the bosses had me go help. Um, it was like a slow week and they went and had me help remove signs. And I was just one of those people. It's like, if we've got a job to do, I just want to get it done and move on to the next thing. And so I became really fast at sign extraction so that I went back into a meaningful labor job and I'm just like, that's not what I'm wanting to do. I want to create art. I worked at a beer distributor making signs for, you know, like um, bars and 
and uh, cabarets and stuff like that. And I was just like, this, this isn't getting me where I want to go. But during that time, I was like constantly gaming. So I was trying constantly trying to work with technology and figure out ways in which I can get a computer into where I was at. You know, like I worked for a, a screen printer, um, like a silk screen t-shirts. And I was like, you know, if you get me a computer, I can design t-shirts for you and we can print them out. Uh, we can cut them out of Ruby lith and then we can, you know, like do the screen printing uh, screens. And I showed it, set up his entire computer, set up the plotter, got it all working, made uh, designs for silk screens. That place closed down after a while. Yeah, it was just a series of like trying to get technology into what I was doing and, and um, places closing down or I needed to move on because I wasn't being challenged in the way I wanted. I got a job at a, a startup uh, insurance company doing graphic design for their um, terms of service and their servers area coverage booklets. And this is back in the old school days when we actually had to do, so desktop publishing, you use PageMaker and then you would print up the page and then you would put it on a non-repro blue board. You would have to wax the paper and stick it to the board and put registration marks and it would go to the printer and they would take a picture of it and that would go in a printing press. I mean, like, dude, <laughs> just really a bunch of horrible jobs. I think I was at that distributing, uh, the beer distributing and I'm just like, I said, I want to make games. This is what I want to do. And there was only two, well, I'll take that back. There was two things I wanted to do. I either wanted to do like special effects makeup for the Hollywood, or I wanted to do video games. And I lived in Texas and there was like Ed and 3D Realms here in Texas. And I would have to go to California to work in, you know, the movie industry. I didn't know anything about, you know, like I didn't know George Romero was doing like the Dawn of the Dead stuff in Pennsylvania. I didn't know there were other options other than Hollywood. I just knew I didn't want to go to California. I didn't want to go to Hollywood. And so the other only other option was working in video games. I was like, if I'm going to do this, I just need to be serious about it. And so I played Doom and I, I was like, man, these guys are huge. There's no way they pick me up. There's no way they're going to take a chance on me. And I played another game around that same time period, and it was called Terminal Velocity. And I was like, wow, this game is nuts because it's like, you know, like Doom is two, 2.5D, right? It's actually yeah. 2D. You're like running around in a 2D space. Mm. Terminal Velocity was, I think, two years later, and it was full six degrees of, three, of freedom, and it was flying planet to planet and uh, blowing stuff up. And it was all in 3D. And I was like, this is amazing. This is really cool. And of course, I pirated the game. <laughs> <laughs> And I played the whole thing, and um, and I looked on the I looked on the information, and it said 3D Realms was in Garland, Texas. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to call them up, and I just called them, and I said, hey, I really loved uh, your game, and I'd like to come work for you. Just bold, bold as can be, right? And the guy's guy says, oh, which game? And I said, Terminal Velocity. He goes, oh, that's a that's a company called Terminal Terminal Reality. I can give the information to you, and you can contact them. I was like, cool, let's do it. And so I called them up, and um, there's a person there. I'm not going to say their name because they actually had um, a lot of legal trouble, and I don't want to. That's yeah. all good. Sure. <laughs> so the person that I talked to, who was there, I said, hey, um, I'm an artist. Uh, I would love to come work on video games for you. And he was like, oh, we don't need artists. I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, but I need a level designer. I was like, I can do that. What is level design? I didn't know, right? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And he goes, okay. Uh, he goes, just bring a level in. And so I made a Doom level, Doom 2 level, right? And uh, in D-Edit, and it was corrupted. I couldn't get it to open. I was just like, <laughs> you know, I was sitting there talking to these guys. We're trying to load it. It just didn't work because that was pirated too. So, <laughs> you know, there was just like, nothing worked, right? I remember the guy just sat, kind of sat there and looked at me. And then the boss that run the place, a guy named Mark Randall. So he said, um, he goes, what made, you, what made you interested in this? 
uh, this company. I said, terminal velocity is amazing. Full six degree of freedom, flying around way better than, you know, than a 2.5D, you know, doom experience because I felt like I was more immersed and all that stuff. He said, what's your favorite level? And I told him and he goes, he goes, oh, um, did you buy the game? I was like, no, no, no. I just have the, um, I just have the demo. He goes, oh, because that levels in the full version. And I just went like, <laughs> and he kind of smirked at me. He goes, okay. He goes, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a chance. You know, like, and that was it. Okay. Like he knew I pirated it and he didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, well, I guess he saw the spark in your eye. Oh, he knew. Yeah. He knew yeah. I was hungry. Right. And I, t- I told him, I was like, I'll, you know, pay me, pay me what you need to pay me. I'll, I said, I'll come in here. I'll do the work. And then I'll even like clean, clean the toilets. I'm not above doing menial labor i've been doing it my entire life right so up until i was 35 years old i was doing like jobs nobody wants to do i was just gonna say so what did you what did they start you at there so you because they obviously wanted level designers but then your background was graphical design. so did you start as with level design still was that yeah yeah they... so so what happened there's a guy there named joe selinski he's a great guy i love him uh we called him joski he was the level designer for terminal velocity and for uh fury three which was the sequel to Terminal Velocity. The game that we were supposed to make was Hellbender. And Joe was just burnt out because he had he'd been the only level designer for the entire series up to that point. And he just couldn't, he was just done. Like he would sit, he would sit at his computer and just stare at it and not really do anything. And you couldn't blame him because he had just been through a meat grinder. And so um, they were just like, okay, here's some, we need some levels. And there was a guy there named Drew Hayworth and he has like some prototype sort of areas that he worked on with the technology and it was really interesting technology. So like most games have like a height map for the terrain, right? And it goes from like zero to 255. That way you have like black at zero and then 255 is like the white, you know? So whatever that scale is, you're going between the bounds of zero to 255. He also had a separate layer from zero to negative 128 and from negative 128 to negative 255. So you could create caverns and where those two areas met together, they would create a hole. And so you could fly into a cavern in your ship and then fly out of a cavern. And you had to put like a very special model there that would sort of like cut a hole in the environment, right? And so they said, we just need a bunch of different levels. Uh, Here's the basic premise of this planet. They just gave me one planet to start with. So here's the basic premise. This is how the technology works. Go to town, right? And I just got to do whatever I wanted to do. And I remember... I remember playing with the terrain engine just to get myself, you know, sort of understanding the the pitfalls and the and the strengths of it. And I made like this natural land bridge using that. And um, Mark Randall, the main program and their owner of the company, he's, he he walks in. He goes, "Whose engine is that?" And I was like, "It's yours, dude." <laughs> and he goes, "It's not supposed to do that." And I was like, "Well, here it is." And he's like, "Wow." He goes, I need to make some optimizations, but that's really cool. And he like walked off. Yeah. So I just, I think I did, I'm trying to remember how many of those missions that I did. I think they hired one more, one more level designer. So I probably did like eight out of the nine planets myself, like my very first game. That's crazy, Uh, right? That's it's not the first thing you do is you, you get to do eight out of nine levels. And the other side of that was is that I, I didn't have a really good relationship with with uh, Drew. Um, I was so he was sort of like the art lead, and I kept um, and I'm not saying I was in the right or he was in the wrong or anything. I'm just saying this is how it happened. Uh, I had that fire, and I was gonna make a difference, you know, doing my job, and I'm gonna crush it. 
And so I'm very competitive type of person and that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I was asking for very, I was the level designer. I felt it was my responsibility to get this thing done the way I felt it should be as the level designer, not realizing that environment artists and there wasn't that, right. There wasn't environment artists and, you know, like technical artists and all that stuff. It was just one person doing art, one person doing levels. So I would ask for very specific things and I wouldn't get them from him because I was in my head. I had had this idea about this planet that I wanted to convey because of my storytelling sort of background, at least in my head, my storytelling background, (laughs) you know, from the stories I've written and um, he just wouldn't give it to me. So there was another guy that was working there named Terry Simmons, who's uh, an amazing artist. And I've I've actually hired him several times uh, at other companies. We were were really good friends. So he basically showed me how to use, um, I think think we're using, wasn't 3D Studio, it was 3D Studio 3, version 3, not even Max, just 3D Studio 3. And um, I started building my own art for my levels. And then so like a lot of the levels... I, I used what I could use. And if I didn't have what I wanted, I would build my own art. And then I did a bunch of like pickups. I built pickups for the game. I built, um, yeah, just a bunch of different stuff. And so not only did I do levels, I did a bunch of art as well. So like my very first game, I did like, I would say at least 60% of the, what you see on the screen. So how did it feel when that came out? And, and what was the, you know, how, how did you feel it? So it's, you've, you've, you've done all this work on the game. And, yeah. and so how did it feel? Oh man, just like, I felt great. It was really funny because I was, I was driving this horrible old car, right? I had a Reliant K station wagon that I had to kick the doors closed on. I was just broke. <laughs> and I remember going to like, um, I think it was a Best Buy or something like that. And this kid was playing the game, you know, on the screen. I was like, cool. And I said, hey, type this in. This will give you an- another, you know, bunch of, of um, missiles. It'll give you unlimited missiles for this area. And he goes, really? And he starts typing it in. And he's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. How'd you know that? And I was like, oh, I'm, I worked on the game. He goes, oh, my God, you must be famous. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you should take a look at that my hunk of junk car outside, right? <laughs> but it was cool. It was cool having something that I, I put a lot of time and effort in. And uh, I think it was, oh, it was received okay. I mean, I don't think it was great. I'm going to have to even look like with Moby games. I don't even know what the, um, the rating was. That was the other thing I sort of like got wrapped up into. um, I was very, again, very competitive and all that stuff. And I would get wrapped up in that sort of stuff. And you know, the older I get, the the less I worry about that sort of stuff. And now I just don't even remember. Yeah. So adrenaline vault gave us a 90 uh, uh, electric games gave us a 90 uh, 89. Yeah. So, and then there's some, people who clearly don't know what they're talking about they gave us 60s <laughs> <laughs> well that must be one of the tough balances and actually an interesting one i do i do want to um uh, talk about obviously you're uh, going to uh, work at microsoft and halo and stuff like that but i guess before we even get there but, uh, that that feeling of either obviously being a successful game i mean firstly how much did have you monitored it through your career what the reviews are and secondly how does that make you feel yeah i think I think the first couple I got really worked up about it. And then like, if there was any slight to it, I would get like, I would actually get in there and, you know, talk a little crap back, you know, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Right. You're just just putting coal on the fire. Right. So yeah, the older I got, the more I realized that that was just stupid, but you know, like I said, I was on fire and I wanted to prove something. So, so the older I get, the more mellow I become. And uh, the more I look back and realize how, just how worked up I got over nothing. So 
<laughs> there was one other level designer named uh, David Glasscock. So he and I worked on a bunch of different games together over at Terminal Reality. So, because uh, obviously I know I know you 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 did some work on, on Halo as well. So had you actually played any of the Halo games and, and how did that come about? How did you get into that environment? I worked at FASA inside of Microsoft. Microsoft is the Microsoft Game Studios has a bunch of different studios that they own, just like, you know, 343 Industries. It's like a, it's a first party developer, but they have their own identity. So I worked at a company called FASA who did like Crimson Skies and MechWarrior oh, yeah. and that sort of stuff, right? So really, really good classic games. And I was hired on to work on a game called Shadowrun. And when I first went there, they were working on a, a first person action RPG. And I was just like, this is it. This is awesome. My favorite you know, one of my favorite 80s tabletop role-playing games getting turned into a, a action RPG. Amazing. And then unbeknownst to all of us, you know, Microsoft decided that there was a, a switch in priorities and what they were trying to do is get cross-platform play between Xbox and PC. And what they wanted was the, uh, our studio to sort of shepherd that in. And they really didn't care about the game. They just wanted the cross-platform play. And so they got rid of the action RPG element. And basically we made... Uh, Shadowrun, which is the Counter-Strike with Magic-ish yeah. type thing, and tech. And we only had eight levels, and it was online only. And so we got kind of hammered on that one. But, you know, again, I, I think and my wife and I talked about this in our, our podcast, because we both worked at Microsoft and got laid off around the same time. And they look at, if it's not making billions of dollars, is it worth their while? Mm. Right? And And so they could see where cross-platform play would be far more lucrative than one game, right? And that way they, get, they would get people, to, you know, the systems talking to each other and all of the games, all of the people that are making games for them, they would have to incorporate that cross-platform play and that would bolster Microsoft Game Studios and all that. So anyway, I was working with those guys and after we got done, Halo 3 was trying to ship and they needed some extra hands. And so they just loaned me over there for like a couple of months to help finish up. I, did, I was really there not very long at all. I, when I realized that they were leaving Microsoft, I was trying to stay on with, the, with them. And I was like, I love Microsoft, love working at Microsoft, would really like to work with you guys. When I said I love Microsoft, they were like, okay, well, we're leaving. So, you know. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. All right, you know. So I just, I, I, I decided it was time for me to leave because I needed to find something. Had a, you know, wife and two kids. I needed some stability instead of like two months of, of work and then being on the street. So I found another job within the Microsoft Game Studios group, uh, working with Aces, which is the flight sim train sim group. Yeah, yeah. That was an amazing job. I loved it. And I was blown away that they shut that down. Throughout your kind of gaming career, has there been a bit of instability on where the next game will come <laughs> from, things like that? Is that a, a feature of working in the industry? Yeah, if you're not at the right place, if you don't, it's all a crapshoot, right? So I tell my students this all the time. So I had some friends that went to work at a place called Scion after Ritual. So Ritual laid off some people and uh, a bunch of my friends went over to a place called Scion. And my friend Jay Hosfeld, which you've met Pete, he says, Mike, you should come work with us. This, we're doing some really cool stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a startup, dude. And I've got my wife and kids, he goes, no, it's going to be totally worth it. Worth it. It's going to be totally worth it. And I'm like, no, I need some stability. So I went and took a job at, a, at Sierra. It's a publisher. I was thinking, hey, this is cool. It's a publisher. It's got some stability. My friend Jay, they got bought out by Epic. They got $250,000 sign-on bonuses. And each time the Unreal Engine 3 got licensed, they got $250,000 bonuses. Wow. And I got laid off within a year because <laughs> they shut down Sierra. Yeah. So I thought Microsoft with 
at Microsoft, which is, you know, one of the biggest companies working with the flights and trains in group, which is the oldest product at Microsoft other than DOS. There was DOS, Microsoft Flight Sim, then Windows, right? Wow. Microsoft Flight Sim paid for the Xbox, the Xbox 360, Microsoft Game Studios, purchasing, you know, because of Evergreen, they were just constantly making money year after year, millions of dollars. Not a lot, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, but consistently, right? And so after 27 years, that makes some money, they're able to do some really cool stuff with it. But they had a new uh, studio head come in and uh, that just wasn't his focus. And so he let everybody go. That was the, probably the most mature team I ever worked with in terms of like, you know, methodologies, making sure like a lot of games, when you're, when you're there, uh, you hear about free feature creep all the time. And that's just people going, wouldn't it be cool if, right? Yeah. That's the whole thing. It's like, oh, dude, it'd be cool if this happened. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. The way that worked at Microsoft. Uh, flight sim is I would like, Hey, I have an idea. And this guy was like, awesome. Write it down on this magnetic strip and go over to this 40 foot long wall. That's a magnetic strip wall. The very top is all filled with, we have to ship with this. The middle is nice to have. And the bottom was DLC. And he goes, where does it go on the top? And he goes, make sure you move something down into the nice to have. After you put that up there, he's like, I'm not taking anything off the top part because I don't know enough about it. Because not only was not only was it the things that you had to have, it was all the dependencies that went with it as well. Where are you going to shift it? You have to shift everything, right? So it's just like I'll put it in DLC yeah. every time. Was, <laughs> there was no arguing. There was no emotion about it. It was just like there it is. You solve it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was great. And if you could solve it and it didn't hurt anything else, they were all for it, man. So it was it was a really good team. Wow. But 180 people at the same time were out of the job in that group. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And I think overall, 5,000 people were let go at the same time. And that's that's how I ended up in New Zealand. I just couldn't find a job in the States. Yeah, uh, Led you to Pete. Led me to Pete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are a good couple of years there. I, I really yeah, enjoyed that. I had another question I wanted to ask you. And I think you've talked to a few of things here a little bit about it but what do you think are the best and worst things about working in the game industry yeah i think the best things you know like looking back over my career it's the friends i made you know just like any situation where you have to go through a bunch of highs and lows and long nights and all that stuff you're you build a camaraderie with people and i have you also you know build poor relationships as well that which has haunted me in, in the past but the best part i think is the people just I have friends that to this day, you know, I've worked with in the past that I, I've hired multiple times. They've hired me, been able to pull them out to do talks. You know, it's just, that's that's the most important thing I think I pull away from this is that the relationships that I, that I built were, will be forever, you know. And also those rivalries will probably be forever as well. <laughs> I would love to go back and apologize to people. And I have. I actually um, was really rude to Benson a long time ago. And apologize to him and that's the thing though right when you've got so much yeah. passion it's going to come out in a variety of ways some good it some sure bad. Does. but you yeah. wouldn't trade that passion for anything would you i don't think so i think that's really helped me like i'm not the most talented person you know it was just it was just um being more stubborn than anybody else like i would be there i would get there and work longer hours i would be there like five in the morning and work until like four in the morning which is you know obviously not great for me but um i just wasn't going to leave until i was done you know, and um, I knew I wasn't as talented as half the guys I worked with. So I had to work harder. It's funny, too, because like I worked with um, I used to be fairly good at drawing um, and I would draw all the time. 
uh, up until I worked with Jay Haw- James Hawkins, Jay Hawk, and Paul Richards. Those two guys worked with us over at Ritual and like two of the best concept artists in the industry, right? Like James Hawkins was the guy that did like the concept concept art for Gears of War. Well, like, yeah, I mean, like he's the one that basically is the visual benchmark for that game. And um, Paul Richards did a lot of the Darksiders and stuff like that. And those cool. both of those guys worked at the same place at the same time. And like everybody, everybody that was artists at that place just threw their pencils down and discussed because there was no way that they could outdraw those two guys. And they were certainly faster than us. They were just cranking out 60 to 80 drawings a day and, and like beautiful. Like I, I have students is like, I'm going to be a concept artist. Like awesome, sharp show me a hundred door hinges <laughs> you know and they're like what they're like a hundred door hinges because the first 50 are gonna suck yeah right and they would be like i'm not gonna do that and then i'd show them like paul richard's like hundreds of drawings of the same torch in different ways and it'd be like this is the benchmark if you can't cross that don't do it you know yeah i recommend people going looking at their work um jay James Hawkins is on Art Station as Jay, Jay Hawk, or it might be James Hawkins. And then Paul Richards has a website called autodestruct.com where he talks about his process. He does a lot of teaching on there, but also just shows his work from Darksiders and Quake 4 and all, all those games. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So what are what are some of the worst aspects then? So that I mean the camaraderie definitely seems like a great thing. And I mean I saw that firsthand when all of those guys came down here. Yeah. Because there was that glue, you know, between all of you. But yeah. so what is what do you reckon is the worst part of it? I, I think I think it's just the I think people play on our need to do to excel at our work, right? So we need to get this done. I'm not telling you to work overtime, but we need to get this done. Well, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to get it done because you have, you know, you have like a pride in your work. And then you also have like this because you have all these comrades that are relying on you and you're relying on them. We all work really hard to make sure that we're not sloughing off and having somebody else have it to, you know, fill in your shoes. Right. So there's a little bit of that. All the work that goes into getting the game done, it's getting much better now. Like, I think there's a lot better work life balance now than there was in the past. And I think as the industry matures, I think that's going to get better and better you know they're going to realize that you're going to need more than like 20 people to make a game you know that that needs 100 people 120 people to make the game right so a lot of people are using outsource houses which is really good and to fill in blanks and the procedural stuff now that's that's come along like houdini uh working in houdini is really interesting in in uh, making things go faster, painter, uh, substance painter, substance designer, all those tools. You know, when you tell the students about how we used to do things, like there's been people that had to create a level in Notepad or in uh, yeah Notepad for the Quake engine because there wasn't enough time to build it normally and have it have the lighting process in time, right? So they had basically had to plot out every bit of it, every vertex, every face in Notepad, and that was faster. <laughs> frightening that isn't it (laughs) so so now you know like everything is instantaneous and people are like a lighting build in unreal they're like oh my god this is taking so long that's not two days you know (laughs) you're not doing radiosity captures in two days so you know it's just all that stuff i think i think as the tools get better i think there's gonna be much less people spending too much time at work Mm. and a lot of the companies are getting much better about making sure like at uh, the flight sim train sim group, my boss, uh, Pete Zahn, he would walk in and I would be working at five. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working. He goes, no, you're not. Go home. I was like, no, I got to get this done. He goes, no, you don't. There's tomorrow. <sighs> okay. 
<laughs> you know, so so even even towards the end of my being in the industry, it got better. But yeah, I think I think there's still some of that. I think there's still a lot of like CD Project uh, Red had some problems with Cyberpunk, and you know, you still see it. If we if we go back to games themselves, sure. You know, you started off as a level designer. What to you makes a great level? So, yeah, it really depends on, you know, is, is it multiplayer? Is it, you know, single player? Like what type of game is it? I think I think the nuance of level design is something that people don't realize that there's more to level design than one aspect of it. You know, like especially in the old days, we had to do everything, lighting, texturing, environment art, all that stuff, right? But I think the... Stuff that makes the great level is that it's it's taking everything into account and framing what you're supposed to do next. So it's treating every time you come through a doorway as a painting that illustrates your path. You know, there's an over-reliance right now with quest markers, right? It's like somewhere over here, you're gonna you're gonna find what you're looking for. And so sometimes you get sloppy with conveyance information or you get sloppy with like framing where the person's supposed to go next. I really love like the uh, Wolfenstein series because they're really good about telling you the story about where you're going next. Like you, like when you start off in the old blood, you're in the, the dungeon area. And when you look out over, out through the cage, you'll see the canals down below that you eventually get through. When you're driving up to the castle Wolfenstein, you see the vernacular cable cars and you know you're going to go through there later on. You see the village on the right-hand side. So I think it's those those different attentions to detail and painting a picture about what you're going to do all the foreshadowing and making sure that every time you go into a, a portal that it's painting you a picture about where you need to be heading towards. Open world design makes it more difficult, right? And so you use a lot of, um, at our school, we call them weenies, which is basically just landmarks, right? So like the weenies are sticking out, you know, it draws your eye to that area. So you have to like figure out, like, like City 17, you had the Citadel in Half-Life 2, right? You see it every time you go outside, you see that, and you know eventually you're going to get there. And so using using those sorts of landmarks inside of a level and making sure that the lighting is also conveying where you're supposed to go. I guess the, long wind, <laughs> the long-winded answer is sort of like, let me try to make it into something really simple. Taking all the elements that you need to do and making sure that it's balanced enough so you know what to do, right? So all of those elements come together in a balanced way that drives the player forward. I feel compelled to be that, to be going to the place that you want me to go. And we spend a lot of time talking about that with students, like making sure that they understand if I'm wandering around, you've done your job poorly. Yeah. It's like the exact opposite of designing a medieval castle. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so when you're designing a medieval castle for a game, you still need to make sure that people know where to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, Which is why they're not realistic. Because they're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to send you in a dead end to kill you. <laughs> right. Exactly right. And, and so that's that suspension of dis- disbelief thing that you got to do. You got to make sure that people can suspend their disbelief but by giving them enough realism, but also conveying enough to them so they understand where to go. Really interesting. What's the next big revolution? going to be in gaming or where is it going what's what are you kind of excited about in the future i really want to see mixed reality come to fruition right i really want to see it work in a way that that is naturalistic and i'm not going to accidentally get hit by a car because i'm so engrossed in you know (laughs) in gaming um like VR has done a really great job. I did some some VR stuff when I had my school in New Zealand. When I had uh, SkillTree, I actually did, did a um, demo for a company called Vertical Horizons, which is like a at height training facility. So they would teach people how to work on things like like wind farm fans and stuff like that. And I did a demo of how immersive VR was, and I took I built a locomotive 
like in train simulator, I put them inside a cockpit. I put a chair in the right location. And I also had like this little thing where there's levers and stuff like that, that that were sort of approximately where they should be in the game. And they were able to flip the levers and stuff like that. And while he still had the headset, on this guy stood up and there was a console on your left-hand side and he tried to lean on it and it was not there in the real world. Like it was, he was that engaged with it that he almost fell down and I had to catch him. And so I think there's a way, I think we're getting really close. There's still some problems with like people getting motion sickness and stuff like that, that we need to work through in terms of, you know, getting people to traverse through a level without actually moving. I think that's always going to be hard. And I know the, I know the treadmills are stopgap, but that's not really working as intended. Although there's days where I think that would probably be the best workout for me is just to strap on, you know, get on a treadmill, strap on, like if I'm carrying 200 pounds of stuff on my back in the game then i better be carrying 200 pounds of stuff on my back (laughs) and just and like try to run for six hours like i do in the games (laughs) it would be a good exercise program good way to get fit yeah yeah i think i think mixed reality is going to be the next step vr's vr's not uh, there's not enough uh, people playing it. And I think once we get to the point where people will be able to move through a space safely uh, so they don't get motion sickness and, and incorporating those um, augmented sections, you know, in, into the real world. It's I have some idea. Like with VR, like how, so PlayStation obviously is still focusing on it. You know, they just announced the PSVR 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, very imaginative name, by the way. I'm glad they announced that to the world so we knew what they were going to call it because I was getting confused. But then you have the Microsofts who, who clearly stay away from it from a console perspective. Do, yep. you, do you have any view on, on the, the strategy there or why that might be or, or, how, or how they view it differently? No, I, uh, you know, I've been away from Microsoft for quite a while, but I think they, they went in pretty heavy with... Um, <laughs> Connect. <laughs> yeah, well, though, they went in really heavy with the AR because what they're trying to do is work through work into enterprise. So they want to, yeah. they want to be in the enterprise space. So that's where the money is at, right? Games are, if you're not making a billion dollars, if you don't have halo, or if you don't have gears, you know, and making billions off of it, they don't want to be in that space. They want to be in the space where they're, you know, office and windows, that space is where they're strongest. And I think, you know, their AR, if they can get their AR working well enough, uh, there's still a lot of problems with like the, the hand gesturing and stuff like that. And peripheral vision is still like, it's a very narrow window uh, of um, work there. If they can get that with a wraparound, so you have peripheral vision and, and the hand gestures are more natural. I think they're, they're onto something. A guy that I'm working with right now at, at SMU, he and I work together at Ritual and also at Microsoft, a guy named Doug Service. He worked with that AR group. And so he's, um, he's, wanting to work with me on some research around AR VR. So I don't know, maybe we can, maybe some old dogs can teach some people some new tricks. <laughs> he, and I, he and I are old and crusty. So um, it'd be nice to be able to do something in that space that's a little bit more innovative, mm. you know? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I just think it's fascinating. And again, I think it's interesting. Rich and I talk so much about the passion, only as gamers, right? And that's the thing, right? Like with indies working on their own projects, two or three hours a day you can come up with something yourself you know you just prototype something simple like the problem with me is because i'm an artist and a world builder i'm trying to do like all the things yeah and then and then i get bogged down in the details and what i should be doing is like doing little small prototypes that that get me to where i'm supposed to go you know and i have a couple of different like little games that i want to work on uh, Mm -hmm. that i think will help me be a better developer later on Mm -hmm. and it's just 2d simple games yeah um like a single single screen co-op 
yeah. sort of stuff. I really like 2D, especially kind of pixel art type 2D, because mm-hmm. you're you're limited so much that you've got really got to try and think of something innovative in order to get over the limitations you've set yourself. Right. And all the obvious stuff's already been done in 2D. So it, it forces you to think a little more differently. Right. And that, that's that's why I, I love and I, I'm not a great drawer, but you know, I can yeah. do pixel art. So well, I think I think anything the, the most innovation happens when there's constraint. Yeah. Right. Agreed. So I think there's a lot of times that people think if if I have all the things, then I can think of extra things. And there's there's a time when you're like spoiled for choice and then you don't know which way to go. Where I think if if you set like, you know, there's a Pico eight, which I think is like real simple eight yeah, bit. I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you do all your music in there as well, like real simple stuff. And then you just have to come up with something cool within that space. Mm. This is how many colors I have. This is how mm. many, you know, like uh, audio samples I can work with. Come up with something cool. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And you can and that's do it true, right? relatively quickly too, because it's not yeah. so complicated. Yeah, yeah. And you don't need a hundred people. I mean, no. look at the Game Boy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, the game amazing, fantastic! Yeah, it's, it's, it is fascinating. I think you're right. Lee. You know, necessity is the mother of all inventions. Kind that's of. Right. I think that's true, regardless of what industry you're in. You can see that when people are forced to solve problems in ways they didn't expect, they do a lot better job than when they've got infinite amount of money and infinite amount of resources. So there's, right. there's clearly a balance there between having enough resources and enough money so that you can complete what you're doing, but right. not having so much that you get sloppy. And I think, you know, that's the trick is, is what is that balance? And, and you can see what happens to game studios that get bloated. Yeah, certainly, they, they spend yeah. and waste the money and it doesn't make, make a better game necessarily at all. Yeah, there's, a, there's loads of cautionary tales in the industry about that, right? Like Duke Nukem Forever, for instance. Hmm. Um, just time and money. And like if they had come out, I think, within two years of Half-Life, they would have been legendary. Yeah. yeah. But the... You know, the, the other one, if you look at um, the Crow team, those guys, like Sirius Sam, those guys were in a war. They were fighting in a war. And then they would come home to the barracks and work on a video game mm. at night. And then they would go back out and fight in the war. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, crazy. nuts. Yeah. But, you know, passion and little to work with, you mm. know, you'll get there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, th- thanks for agreeing to talk to us, Mike. It's been really interesting no hearing your kind of points of view and hearing about your life in gaming. Really fascinating. Loved it. Well, I appreciate y'all having me. And uh, it's nice seeing you again, Pete. Nice, nice meeting you, Richard. Yeah, nice yeah. lovely seeing you again, Mike. Hi, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Mike. Next time we have a great guest, David Johnson, a.k.a. DJ. DJ has 25 years experience in industry, worked at Infinity Ward and was head of special effects for the Call of Duty games. He also worked on the infamous airport scene. Be sure to tune in next time, it's a cracker.